in studio this week. Jerry O'Regan is a columnist and former editor with the Irish Independent. Gina Menzies is a theologian and lecturer in medical ethics in the Royal College of Surgeons. And Francis Fitzgibbon is founder of media company Storystock, a former producer here in News Talk, and he's Jerry's cousin. So it's the Kerry media conspiracy today. The Dublin 4-1 is out. There's you, always a conspiracy, isn't there? Always. <laughs> it's just about revealing it. Text us with your comments today on 53106 for 30 cent and I'll just kick off with the newspapers. Uh, the tabloids first. Irish Sunday Mirror. Hammer bloodbath. It describes how a woman was walking out of a chipper and a guy ran after her with a claw hammer and attacked her and it appears they weren't known to each other. Sunday World. Evil intent. Uh, this is a story about a rapist, convicted rapist called Trevor Byrne who's sleeping rough um, in a tent yards from Croke Park. The Irish Sun. Hell cat no fury. Ex-voice host reveals bitter show in fighting. Um, which kind of would lead you to believe that maybe she's angry about stuff but she's not she was describing tensions between uh, the judges Dolores O'Riordan and um, Jamalia um, I, but that's the series that has now been cancelled and it's going to be replaced with a kind of Strictly Come Dancing um, in the Daily Mail more charity problems. Uh, charity chief on board of regulator says my 10k extra is not a top up. And this is a woman called Barbara O'Connell who sits on the board of the charity's regulatory authority and she received the payments in her capacity as the CEO of acquired brain injury. And inside they have another charity story um, about how a criminal gang has infiltrated or taken the jackets of suicide aware and they're collecting money on the streets for them. So charities are really getting it in the neck these days. The broadsheets. The Sunday Business Post. Secret plan, no longer secret plan, to strip state pension from part-time workers. Part-time workers are facing the threat of being cut off from the state pension in the budget. At the moment, part-time workers can qualify for €233 per week contributory state pension on retirement if they earn just €38 per week, the equivalent of four hours. And the Department of Social Protection officials believe this benefit is disproportionate. Um, It reminded me of the time years ago in Trinity College when Joe Duffy was the Students' Union president and they were going to increase the price of a cup of tea by five pence or something. And he staged a huge sit-in in the buttery bar because he said... 5p today off cup of coffee what will it be next so you have to get in early with your protest so that would be my recommendation for the left they also say the RDS is going to sell off its naming rights uh, I think to Leia Healthcare so another stadium that we're not supposed to call anymore by its own name but by the name of another company which I tried to protest against um In the Sunday Business Post, Stephen Kinsler has a big feature on how low can sterling go. And uh, with a reference to uh, Lord of the Rings, he said, I promised you the Shire, but it's still Mordor in the long run. Sorry, not good there. Sunday Independent, Fianna Fáil set to force five euro a week hike in state pensions. All the good things Fianna Fáil can do from the opposition benches. It's Mm. just wonderful. And the Sunday Times, Rio Olympics hit by new doping scandal. I'm getting all the doping scandals mixed up these days. They have a big feature in there. They also have a really mad story about how Bernie Eccleston's mother-in-law was kidnapped by Brazilian criminals and uh, how they freed her. It's well worth the read. And then they do a little thing recalling past kidnapping cases and kids who got kidnapped and the difference between those who paid and those who wouldn't. It's worth a look. Um, but Jerry O'Regan, um, I think we've almost reached or probably have passed minute media saturation point. Um, but it's still, there's some good coverage in the papers today. A theme seems to be... Dermot Martin, he took this stand. His fellow bishops are not a bit impressed and he seems to be isolated from them. But a lot of priests aren't that impressed either. And the Association of Catholic Priests has been defending Maynooth. He seems to be a guy that is his own people don't like too much, but the media and the ordinary people seem to like him. Well, I, I think like th- this is this is is Gubu-esque, this whole story, and I, but I think there's a number of themes from it. One is I think it, in all in all, it's a very good thing, because traditionally, if this if you went back to nine, this if you went back fifty years ago, all of this would be hushed up and would all be sorted out behind closed doors. And as we all know, oh, until about twenty years ago, anyway, there was no Catholic priest and certainly no member of the hierarchy who ever broke ranks. If they were, they were sent to the missions in Nigeria. Or Central African Republic or somewhere. So, I mean, in in one sense, it's a very good thing that we're having all this stuff out in the open. There's one thing I know Archbishop Martin is the darling of the media and is certainly, um, you know, a very... 
uh, what shall I say, influential churchman here. But it does strike me that he's basing some of his assumptions and statements on his own remarks about rumour, innuendo and people getting on websites and things like that. I think if you were to put any institution in Ireland up under scrutiny as per those criteria, they mightn't come out of it too well. It would seem to me that the Catholic Church is still a powerful institution. There are people running Maynooth. There are some... Some allegations are trivial, I would have thought, like websites and that. I mean, how can anybody, you know, track people who are going on websites? I don't know. Uh, but there's, then there are some serious allegations being made. But certainly it would seem to me the authorities in Maynooth should set up a proper investigation if this is the thing. And as a result of the investigation, then Archbishop Martin and various other people should go public. But it seems to me that it's done completely the wrong way around. And I'd say the reputations of some people in this situation are being damaged by inference. I actually got a feeling that it was nearly the fact, you know, I put this to you, of the anonymous letters themselves that was upsetting Dermot Martin, that it wasn't so much I'm taking my people out of Maynooth because other people there are on Grinder. It was that there was this toxic culture of people trying to out other people and make these complaints and send these anonymous letters that they wouldn't back up publicly and that when they were told to go I think Dermot Martin told the letter writers go and complain officially they wouldn't do it because they feared retribution so it wasn't just the gay thing that he took them out for I I agree I don't think it's it's totally to do with whatever is called the gay subculture and I kind of dislike that uh, phrase entirely anyway but I think his initial comment was that Maynooth was a quarrelsome place mm. and I think as Cherry said I'm sure at times news talk is a quarrelsome place oh, yeah. we, all, <laughs> we all live in environments that at times are quarrelsome it's, so, it's a word you could never apply to newspapers <laughs> in my experience that's for sure so you know, that just seems to be a very strange way to explain what is a very significant uh, you know policy decision on his behalf and when you kind of dig down into it I think there are multiple agendas going on um, in Maynooth and in the Irish Catholic Church and I think it's more possibly to do with a phrase that did jump jump out during the week was that some students were not allowed progress because they were deemed to be theologically rigid and I think that's very significant because I think Maynooth which was the centre of excellence for theological education I think it has moved in its theological if you like uh, training um, I think it has embraced and so far as I'm aware um, a lot of the sort of the the direction of Vatican II and obviously in the Irish church there are people who are deeply unhappy about that and they want to be theologically rigid they think you know this notion we have the truth Whereas Vatican II set off a direction which said, well, we, the truth may be sort of something that we're always striving after, that it's a, it's a journey. And I think very, very few people resonate with the thing that the truth is there for, for all time and in, in all kind of in all do you, um, do you context. Think, do you think the Catholic Church should be for those who actually believe everything they hear? Or are those who maybe don't go along with the full supernatural elements of it, but like being part of a community who show up anyway? Well, I, I think that I think there's diversity in everything. I think people believe a whole range of different things. Somebody once said to me, if you went into you know a Catholic church at, at a sort of a mass on a Sunday and you asked a hundred people what do you believe is actually happening here in relation to the Eucharist and what are you about to receive? You wouldn't get a hundred different views, but I suspect you'd get quite a variety of views. Mm. And I think your fundamental... I I think Jerry sort of was right there that perhaps this will throw up more fundamental questions as to, you know, what is the purpose of the church? Who is the church? I mean, that's a huge open question. The church is not just now the, the ruling elite. The church is everybody, very much Vatican too. Um, fra- and, and, so, sorry. and sorry, the other one is really, you know, what is the purpose of a seminary and of priests in the 21st century? You know, what kind of priests, what kind of ministry? I would always change it, not just priestly ministry, but what kind of ministry does the church need? And therefore, what is the appropriate training for that ministry. Uh, on that point, Francis before, Fitzgibbon, um, yeah. I remember growing up and my grandparents lived in Kilflin Village, which Jerry will know down in County Kerry. And the highlight of the week was going to Mass on a Sunday morning and it was a place you'd go down and you'd meet all the old bachelor farmers and they'd talk about the price of yos or the price of beef or whatever it was. And for them, it was an opportunity to get out of the house, 
to meet people. It was about community. All the men stood at the back of the church. Most of them never went into church. Uh, and I would, I, when I was a certain age, I would be with my grandmother down the front of the church with all the women. <laughs> when I reached another certain age, it was like a ritual. I was down the back of the church with all the men and we're talking about this, that and the other. We'd go in for a pint uh, after uh, in, the, in the two pubs in the village. And that was the sense of community. That was the church. But you see, some people would say, well, that's hypocrisy. They shouldn't be there. It's not. It's not because the church is more about that. And I've, I've actually come full circle on this because when I was younger, I was a real, uh, I was in the brigade of people who were knocking the church all the time. And you know what changed everything for me? What? Was walking the Camino de Santiago in, in, in Spain because all of a sudden I found myself going into churches. Every, my mother asked me to do it a couple of years ago and we started it. And I, I thought it would be terrible. I thought this is just my family penance, something I have to do. Uh, but I actually loved it. And we walked five days the first year. And every year since we've done a little bit and I'm finishing it this end of August, the last 10 days. And I'm not religious and I don't believe in all what I call the airy fairiness of a lot of the church. But I do believe now in the sense of community and what going into a church and the rituals like communion, confirmation, weddings and in particular funerals. I was very close with my grandmother and I was there with her alone when we died, when she died. And the first person I called was the priest. Mm. Uh, and, and that was, to me was a very significant thing for her and for me and, and that sense of community because I thought the most important thing that she would have there at that particular time was a priest. Yeah. I was just going to say from what Francis was saying there. Somebody was saying one time that if you actually look at the history of Irish Catholicism, you know, I mean, we really became fervently Catholic in the way we all can remember, say, about the middle, uh, you know, after the famine when Cardinal Cullen got power in Dublin. Yeah, and Michael, we, Michael Kelly, the editor of the Irish Catholic, has a brilliant article in yesterday's Indoor Review about Cullen and that change. Yes, and it, yeah. it, it all became tied up with, um, you, you know, they tried to get away, get the Irish a bit away from Pishogs yeah. and airy fairy stuff and um, all that kind of thing. So we've had 150 years, say, of that. That year is now over. And we'll now move on because Ireland is better educated, more affluent and all the rest of it. I wouldn't panic at all. I think the human species have a tendency to seek solace from some higher power wherever they're living. But somebody said one time, Irish Catholicism is really to do with four things. Births, marriages death and if you ever get an attack of the heebie-jeebies at <laughs> half four in the morning it, certainly at that stage and if you're a doubting Thomas you may well in actual fact appeal to the Lord to look <laughs> try and get me out of this particular situation No and no atheists I, in a foxhole And I think <clears throat> whatever will happen Manute we will go back that's where we came from that's where we'll go back to I, mean, I, I think that the church will endure in whatever form it will into the future but I think following what Francis was saying um, some years ago, and it's, it's continued, I think, every seven years, there's a European values survey and one that was done sort of shortly after the sort of the, the breakdown of the Berlin Wall. In other words, when the communist wall was broken down and they did a survey and based on sort of people's religious affiliations. And I think one of the findings never well, has always struck me was that people were still connected where there was a local connection. Mm. And that it depended hugely on the local environment, the local context, how the local pastor priest um, connected with the community, either sort of either behind the Iron Curtain or not. And I think Francis has kind of echoed that. So people will stay connected where they find meaning in whatever is, is taking place. And they will be disconnected when they have edicts coming from the Vatican that make no sense in relation to their life. I mean, I think to, it's very sad that the, the Vatican, the rule-bound Catholicism, uh, uh, and rules, we, we all need rules, but it's almost become an obstacle to people's faith and yet they will they will stay where they find meaning at their local level. Uh, Francis Fitzgibbon, John Drennan has a funny commentary um, in the Daily Mail because um, he was in Maynooth University in the 1980s and his descriptions are funny. He said back then clerical students were the natural aristocrats of the college and for country girls in particular bagging a clerical student under the point <laughs> system of that age was quite a catch. I'm not sure whether you talk about uh, Maynooth or Beath there when I, when I was reading and he it for says, a while. One of the consequences of this was a carry-on cleric-style spectacle of dozens of clerical students desperately climbing over the college walls at dawn just before Sunday matins. But, you know, we were talking before the show, <clears throat> why do gay men join the church? Because it seems a lot do. Mm. Why do you think they do? Well, 
On, on the show you did yesterday on Talking Point, Paddy Agnew, if I'm not, I don't want to misquote him, it was, yeah, him effectively yeah. said that they joined the church because it's a, there's a lot of men in the church and it's an atmosphere of men and it's a natural attraction for uh, gay men to, to join the church. He, he was specifically talking about Rome and he said there's more gay men per square inch in the Vatican than anywhere else in the yeah. world. Yeah. And I, I think I don't buy that argument, to be perfectly honest, um, because I mean, if that was the case, then the army would be chock-a-block full of gays. Professional football would be chock-a-block full of gays or the construction sector. And from my experience as a gay man, they're, they're not, you know, and I don't have any friends in, in the army or the construction, uh, whereas I do know some people involved, you know, in, in, in the clergy. Is it about it's a way to be a single man without being challenged? That, you know, if you're in any of those other professions, people would expect you to be very masculine and have but, women. But then the Anglican Church is, has a lot of uh, homosexual people in, in it as well. And, and they don't have celibacy in the same way the Catholic Church do so that would seem to make a nonsense of that argument I, I have a theory myself in the sense of that a lot of gay people would have in their lifetime been through um, you know a lot of adversity a lot of struggle a lot of internal reflection in themselves and that the natural theological background of the clergy might attract them to that the caringness of the profession you see a lot of gay people going into teaching profession something where they feel they can give back to the community because and I, I know it is the same is, is, is true for counselling and psychotherapy I have a lot of gay friends who are involved in counselling psychotherapy that when you have gone through a lot of adversity in your life that this may be an attractive position that also gives you a sense you know it's a position of power in the community it's, it's a, an important position um, what I find is a lot of gay people are quite ambitious because a lot of the time they feel they have something to prove because in one sense they've, you know, maybe deep down in part of them might have felt they've let their family down or their community mm. down so that they they go that extra mile in their career and all of, all of the rest of it to prove themselves almost in some sense. Um, we're going to listen to something. You're, so you do story stock, you collect mm. stories from people and you interviewed a former seminarian um, who left Maynooth because he was gay and he describes in this the process of how he came out to his classmates. It's a natural thing where you have, you know, when I was um, in seminary, there was over 300 men, guys, uh, living under one roof. So naturally, of course, there's going to be um, an element of people who are straight, people who are gay. That's just life, and you know, um, that's the world as we live in it. You're not, you're not going to have 300 and something, 360, I think it was at the time, heterosexuals living under one roof. One guy uh, did come out to me, um, and subsequently um, I then came out to him, although I, I was a little bit slow to. Um, but then, you know, as we came out to each other, um, he then, you know, said, well, actually, so-and-so is gay, and so-and-so is gay, and um, it became quite clear that um, I wasn't the only gay in the village or seminary or whatever you want to call it. So, yeah, there were quite a lot, yeah. Um, and so Gina Menzies, um, Donna Lynch in today's Sunday Independent also quotes uh, Paddy Agnew um, saying that thing about more gays per square inch in the Vatican than anywhere else in the entire world. Um, Iggy O'Donovan was on my show yesterday and he said, you know, if Dermot Martin really wanted to protect men from uh, this mysterious gay subculture, well, the last place you should send them is the Vatican. Um, what's your response to this well, I suppose one of the things that's interesting because I studied theology, um, not in Maynooth, but in the Milltown Institute, which was, if you like, a, a pontifical university was what it was called. And it had students from, you know, mainly Jesuits, but Carmelites, a variety of other orders, because that's where they were sending their students for their theological training. And it was like a third level university where people did kick off their heels. But I thought what was healthy about it was that people, all those students came from different um, different orders. You know, we came, we studied, we argued like mad, um, we helped each other and we partied in the way I would think that third level students do. And it never, it never kind of crossed my mind that some of these people might be gay or not. It, it seemed, and it does seem to me irrelevant as long as people are behaving um, appropriately. But there does seem to be something about sort of... uh, And a few years ago, I think, uh, uh, there was this apostolic visitation about Maynooth and uh, a whole lot of new rules and regulations were made. And and a producer, I think, in in, um, here told me recently that... um, And she'd only left five years ago, that there were separate entrances um, for the seminarians. Like, that seems to me to be going... Yeah, and so Elaine, the whole configuration. Yeah, Elaine um, Byrne in the Sunday Business Post mentions that today that they brought in separate eating places. Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, so like 
you know, I, I, I kind of, I suppose, I work, work in the world around teaching as in medical students. You wouldn't sort of take away people who are studying medicine and incarcerate them and give all this sort of theory and then sort of send them back into hospitals and environments. You, you the know, same so, Francis, well. yeah. yeah. John Drennan there was talking about, you know, the seminarians and the local girls. Why wasn't that the main story? You know, why, why is it yes. the subculture of, of the, the, well, the actually, actually, actually I, I think Jerry. that's one of the unfair dimensions again mm. of this of this debate people are talking about a gay subculture mm. they're not mentioning at all a heterosexual sub- subculture and I would have thought um, that that's I, I would have thought in actual fact anybody um, training if you like for the priesthood in the classic sense that must be a major issue in their life probably maybe for all of their lives whether they're heterosexual or homosexual and certainly would be a big issue during those formative five or six years when they're making in many ways which is almost an irretrievable decision that they're going to remain celibate for the rest of their lives and uh, um of, co- of course, there would be a tension factor in all that, if you like. And uh, several texters have pointed that out, Eamon and Ed, and saying, look, the issue here is celibacy. And is that what maybe is the problem in the whole well, thing? That it's just an unreasonable expectation? Well, well again, if you go back to uh, the way things used to be, we were given the impression until the, the, the coming out of the Irish people 20 years ago that celibacy was not a problem until we had the Bishop Casey and other, mm. uh, and other cause celebre of, of, of that ilk. But now we know that in actual fact with the best will in the world, it is. In, let's put it like this: it's an issue for people, with many of whom have to be respected, who decide to devote themselves to a religious life, and it will continue to be. Um, uh, what shall I say? A, an ongoing point of debate, and it can never end. It can. It cannot, in actual fact, be resolved. The Catholic Church cannot totally turn around human nature. The Catholic Church will continue to have senior clerics and other clerics having relationships, hopefully with other adults and not involved with children and things like that. And that is something it has to live with. And possibly a subtext again in this whole debate is that this whole celibacy issue is forcing itself onto the front line of debate and it's being masked by rather aside arguments as to whether or not um, you know Maynooth is theologically to the left or the right whether it's post-Vatican II or pre-Vatican II whether it's pro the current Pope or pro Pope Heist the Twelfth like these are pinhead discussions in a way in a fairly secular country which Ireland is now at the moment so in that sense I think it's all to the good and I think the whole celibacy issue and all the rest of it will continue to be a huge issue not only for the Catholic Church but for various religious entities around the world who have this as part of their modus operandi What's interesting is that if you like the training in the past would have and you'd hear a lot of older priests saying that you know when they went through sort of their training that that their humanity was almost stripped out of them. I mean, there was a very good programme recently about um, Columban missionary priests um, called the Judas Iscariot Lunch. It was utterly fascinating. These were priests in their 70s, 80s. And they said, like, the whole area of not just even celibacy, but whole of, of the, the, this, the fact that we're sexual human beings was completely stripped out. Yeah, but they... And then one day they woke up as adults and they realised either that they were gay or heterosexual. And that had been discounted. It was almost like, now this is very traditional, that you entered a seminary, you decided that you you had a calling and, 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 there, and you left your kind of human sexuality behind. And I think Jerry's right. I mean, that, that's an anachronism and, and it won't work. I mean, and we have to go back to why was celibacy ever introduced in the church? It was to do a property. That's the point. It was in the 12th century. Was and to could do a you property. ever see it as being realistic? Like I was trying to think, how would married priests work financially? The parish would not then have to support a family, not just a single Fearful man. But it's happening anyway. Sarah, but it's happening anyway. I mean, the, the Orthodox Church has married priests. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I'm still laughing about Fianna Fáil. And I have I'm to a take plan. a break or my producer. But you know, there are married me. Anglican priests. And the fascinating thing is that married, and this is really convoluted, but married yeah. Anglican priests, uh, some of them are very unhappy with their ordination of women into the priesthood in the Anglican Church, so they they wanted to leave, and who are they embraced by? The Catholic Church, who embraced them with their wives and their children.
children. So, like, don't say that it can't work. I mean, I actually think the good thing about community supporting priests would be that they would be very connected to their community and that community might, might end up even sort of advocating or selecting their bishops. I mean, wouldn't that be a different scene? Wow, that's a whole different church. Um, so we've gone around the papers and it's actually quite a lot of stuff not about Maynooth, which some listeners might be relieved to hear. Francis Fitzgibbon, uh, Tesco are boycotting John West Tuna. Why is that? Yeah, so Tesco Ireland, they plan to uh, discontinue a number of the John West products. They're, they're saying it's the failure of the company to fulfil a promise to source 100% sustainable tuna by 2016. I think it's really just a case of food purity gone mad. Like Tesco will do whatever they perceive that their customers or the public or PR dictates that they want them to do. And I think really what a lot of the food purists would, would actually want is Tesco executives out on the cliffs with their fishing rod individually catching their tunas but still paying 99 cents for that can of tuna. And that's that's the key issue. Yeah, it's in the Sunday Times page nine. Someone said to me last week that conservatives are all about moral purity but liberals are all about yeah. food purity. Well, the, 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 the European Parliament did, there was a whole issue of labelling came up in the European Parliament and they wanted to have all kinds of labels for food. What kind of calorie, where it was made, the amount of... Uh, amino acids or whatever you have in the food and that so they did surveys and as they do before each piece of legislation and it was something like 90% of the European people wanted food labelling then they went and how many and surveyed how many people were prepared to pay extra money for food labelling and it was 9% yeah so people want good quality homegrown food, but they don't want to pay for it. I remember saying this to a manager in one of our local shops. They had, I don't know, Mange 2 from Kenya or something mm. on the shelf. And, you know, it could be grown in North County Dublin with all the other stuff. And he said, Sarah, no one would buy it. Yeah. If I had Irish vegetables here, no one would buy it. People want cheap food, end up. Yeah. So all this stuff about, and it's driving so much misery in the world yeah. um, all this transportation of food and you know yeah. getting the poor people of the world it, to grow it, it. it is and, and some, some of the like I, I remember lately I was looking at um, blackberries in one of the, the multiples and I was paying three euros for them um, now they were coming in from Guatemala yeah. I've come from Kerry we have ditches <laughs> full of blackberries I could be out there picking blackberries but I don't have the time or at least I perceive that I don't have the time so instead I pay three euros to import them all the way from Guatemala and some poor Guatemalan family picking my blackberries over there when I could be picking them on the ditch Well I'm, I'm, sure I'm a good Kerry blackberries are much tastier I mean I, I've noticed that about Gina. strawberries um, I mean there is nothing like the, the smell and taste of Wexford strawberries and there's a lot of imported strawberries that are actually I, I, utterly tasteless they have yeah. the right colour and the right shape but they're utterly tasteless yeah but food guilt is part of being a good Catholic you know. <laughs> so um, now Gina you have a story there um, you're of course you're a lecturer in medical ethics so this is in the Sunday Times too um, yes it's an interesting medics afraid to admit mistakes and it is really interesting because there certainly has been a huge move forward for um, medical error to be disclosed. But there's a huge <coughs> fear also, um, you know, in medical people that if they disclose that something went wrong, that therefore that, that will then lead to some kind of litigation. So it's trying to find sort of a midway between people recognising that something went wrong. And I'd preface all that by saying that, you know, medicine, my view, uh, an interpretation or at least a, a definition is medicine is an art based on science. You line up all the science, you line up evidence-based medicine is the kind of the cliche phrase, but it makes sense. And then you make a judgment and the judgment may not always be 100% accurate. So how could it be? Humans are very complex. Operations do go wrong. Now, there's two kind of areas in this. There's one area that we call never events. And that means that you know, what happened would be inexcusable. It should never have happened. Like the wrong kidney being removed. There was an awful incident in um, in Crumlin a few years ago, well, well written about, where a child had a wrong kidney removed. And now, if you like, the, the, the practice certainly, and even then it was there, but obviously somebody wasn't following through on it, I think, was that, you know, if, you, if you're going through a very major sort of surgery, there would be a checklist just the same as a pilot about to take mm. off and you go through all this checklist and you go through it multiple times and multiple people go through it so that you'd have a ne you'd never have a wrong kidney removed. That should be a never event. Then the other side is that sort of sometimes there's misprescriptions or there's um, or the operation doesn't go well and there's a very strong view 
And just like, I suppose, in the abuse situation, what most patients want is they want to know what happened. And it is absolutely ethically and legally required that that be explained to them. Um, And saying, I am sorry this didn't turn out right is not an admission of I did something wrong. It means I'm sorry the operation wasn't as successful as we hoped. We found something else. There's something else that, that, that isn't right and we're not able to fix it because you can't fix everything. I think there's a strong view now, like in the population out there, that everything is fixable. Mm. My poor old mum really believed that there was an injection and a pill for everything. And she said, you know, why can't you get rid of my arthritis? Is there not a but pill? But then also so many litigants will say if they had just said sorry at yes, the start, exactly. that would have been enough. Exactly. And I remember once I was filling in in TV3 for Vincent Brown and I accidentally libeled somebody. I really didn't mean to. And um, they uh, sent in a legal letter. And against what would have been all advice, I rang them up and I said, I am so sorry. Mm. I really didn't mean to do that. And they said, you know what? Thank you. And exactly. that was the end of it. Exactly. And that's what yeah. I mean, like saying, I am sorry mm. is, per- is is the right thing to do. Not I'm sorry that, you know, that I took out the wrong kidney, but I'm sorry something didn't, that the operation didn't go well. So I'm sorry doesn't mean that I'm guilty of something very bad. So there's two kind of, I said, two areas. And I think the government, the last government was introducing a sort of a disclosure to patients bill. So hopefully that will come on board. Like the the advice that's always given is um, say you're sorry, say what happened and say what you're going to do now to try and rectify it or to to make make it better. Just one other thing is some years ago, I think in Tala Hospital, they introduced um, a disclosure policy about misprescriptions and it had a massively positive impact because people were actually admitting that something wasn't correct and actually the number of of misprescriptions plummeted. Really? So, you know, honesty it's like like the church, like everything else honesty and openness generally tends to have a positive well, response. Well, kind of ties in with the Francis. HSE defending all those uh, cases against families who have gone through the mill already yeah. and then they sue the HSE pre- presumably because they feel they have to that they have no other choice uh, and there's issues of disclosure, getting their records because the HSE can just put up a wall, a legal wall in front of the family, which is morally wrong, you know. Mm. A, a and then they come in but, at the but very a, last yeah. day yeah. after but, but years I, and I years ju- and just years. N- not totally in defence, but I think mm. the issue there is frequently that insurance companies are running, mm. the, running, if you like, the, mm. the, the, the issue, not necessarily. Which is wrong. Uh, it is yeah, wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know the thing that you say, if, you, if your car has a bump, um, or you've bumped somebody, you don't jump out and say, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, I did it, which is a logical human reaction yeah. to doing something wrong. You're meant to say absolutely nothing and let the insurance companies fight, fight it out. And I think that's that's a big issue in this area as well. I think it's what Francis is saying, mm. that, that the people feel they're not getting the answers, so they have to go the legal route, which is torturous and expensive and very unhelpful to anybody. Now, Jerry O'Regan, you have a story also from the Sunday Times about atheists in Monaghan. Tell me about that. Well, uh, it's one of these stories which probably suggests that really, at the end of the day, the world really isn't half settled at all. (laughs) Um, I'd possibly read out the first two parts. Please do. (laughs) Atheist Ireland has lost an equality case in which it alleged Monaghan Farmers Market discriminated against it on religious grounds when it refused the organisation permission to set up a stall. John Hamill... Kevin Monaghan, chairman of Atheist Ireland, not Fianna Fáil, <laughs> took a case to the Workplace Relations Commission under the Equal Status Act, claiming stallholders at the market sold what he described as overtly Christian products, including St. Bridget, Bridget crosses, and openly proselytised, but that Atheist Ireland had, be, had been from their point of view, had been refused permission to take a stall in the market because some members of the market's organising committee were devoutly Christian. So, and they lost. They and, lost they, and they lost. And they lost. But it's, it kind of ties in, in a way, with the whole minute thing because one of the better things about Ireland, uh, people be more like the growth of secularism and all the rest of it, but... One of the better things about Ireland, I think, in recent years is a tendency to let people alone when it comes to their particular (laughs) religious and other beliefs. And I think if my advice to Atheist Ireland up in Cavan Monaghan would be to chill out (laughs) and leave the boys in the market continue selling their produce and you know, nobody will be any of the worse for it. Well, yes, maybe that's Francis, a point in, in yeah. that all of the gays want to go to a church that hates them. In the same way, now all uh, gay couples who are getting married want to go to that bakery in the north who refuses to bake cakes yes. for gays. They, everybody wants to have their cake baked there. Now, I don't <laughs> understand <laughs> it at all. And what, yeah. what do you think about the freedom of speech issue there? Like, should 
farmers markets be made have the atheists if they've got the Christians should the baker be made make the cake that it is discrimination I, I, I think it's I think Jerry has said the right words there just chill out I think people give too much traction mm. and too much thought to issue it's like when you're a child and the, the group won't let you play with their group and then you have to go over and tell your mammy and your mammy brings you over to the group and says now you must play with them and you know they hate you even more at that stage and they'll probably bully you even more but you're smiling you're smug you're in the middle of the group thinking I'm in the group on and, a slight, and that's kind sorry, of it. On a slightly serious note in relation to sort of atheist representation if you remember sort of not so long ago the protection of life and pregnancy bill and mm-hmm. I sat through those three days of hearings in the Oireachtas which were utterly fascinating and Jerry Buttermer to absolute his credit ran them so even-handedly dealt with all people in his own party as well and Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and whoever but it was interesting that one of the days they had representatives from all the religious uh, faiths there so and there were six if you like you know Catholic, Protestant, Methodist, Presbyterian, etc., Jewish, uh, somebody from the Muslim community, and a representative from Atheist Ireland. And I understand that Atheist Ireland were initially very offended that they weren't there, and they made a uh, plea to be there. And, oh, and right. you know, and and they were, and and they probably should have been there in the first instance. So there's appropriate places, I think, you know, where everybody should be included, inclusive. And there are other places where I think, as Francis, well, right, yes, let's, let's all side, chill out. Actually, I was just going to say. Did you ever study food markets in your theological um, <laughs> and and the place of religion within them? Well, of course, you know, food food was a kind of one of the rules uh, within within religious you know uh, context as well as to what you could and couldn't eat. There's no doubt about that. There's probably a whole theology of food which I have never dipped into. It, it is in every religion has well, its yes, food absolutely. rules. Well, food and fasting and you know what's appropriate, what's inappropriate. So yes, but yeah, Francis, you were making a point there about just, Islam. You know, I suppose if it, if it was a stall selling Islamic trinkets or promoting Islam as a religion as opposed to the Catholic religion, had they refused that, I think it would be a different yes, front page story. Yeah. To, it would be a different story today and we'd probably have a different tone. So what is, but is there a genuine free speech issue here? You know, if the baker is allowed to say no, Mm. well then, why can't all the bakers say no? You know, if the farmer's market can say no to the atheists and maybe, and what if they did say no to, to Islam? That isn't fair, surely. Everyone should be allowed to have their spake. Yeah, no, they should. And it's, it's one I struggle with because on the one hand, you, you kind of think like, oh, why do people want the cake? But but people said to me before, OK, what if that had been, say, a black person walked yeah. in and said, I want a cake and said, well, we don't bake cakes for black people. Yeah. Then that would have been a totally different argument. So there's kind of a, you have to draw a sensible line mm. somewhere in the sand and say, OK, look, somebody's entitled to their opinion. Now, as business people, I don't know why they should let their opinion get in the way of, of good business, because good business people uh, know that, look, business is business. Um, so we have to draw a line somewhere in the sand. A sensible line, I think, is is, is the way we describe it. Now, Jerry, you're smirking over there. <laughs> <laughs> what do you call a sensible line? Well, well I, you see, you know, as Francis was saying, that, that, like this whole area has become a probably, you know, one has to be careful with what one says, but probably over PC. And I just think a, a bit of easing up, uh, you know, all round, particularly, you know, in relation to religion and personal beliefs. And because there's no absolutism mm. on, 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 any, on anybody's part, since nobody has come back from the other side to say, in actual fact, lads, we were right and everybody else is wrong. <laughs> um, so like, but, but I, I just think that it has been one of the better things. I mean, I, I was listening recently, recently to Professor Joe Lee, uh, you know, the historian, yes. and he was he was talking about his life as a historian in Ireland. And I thought he made one very good central point, which is the Republic of Ireland, indeed the island of Ireland, but the Republic of Ireland is a way better place on so many levels mm-hmm. than it was, we'll say, 40 or 50 years yes. ago. And I know we spend an awful lot of our time, you know, contemplating our navels and berating ourselves and that's uh, we should do a lot of that and all the rest of it but I think particularly in relation to religious belief and religious practice like we all experienced in the old days the person you know completely holier than thou that they had an entree in through the gate the pearly gates and actually Francis on that you know in a week like this when you hear about Maynooth I think there's a lot of comment in the press on a consistent basis that's behaving as if we're still in the 80s when the Catholic Church is mm. this dominant mm. force. And it's just not. 
Well, and, and again, I think it's more the media and what the media are talking about. And there's a gulf between that and what the actual people uh, at home care about and what they're thinking and talking about. I think actually being out and about this week, the biggest issue for people at home was what is Grinder and how does it work? Yes. <laughs> and they're like, show me your Grinder. Do you have Grinder now? Open it up there. And they don't want to ask you directly. So they kind of ask you in a roundabout way. Now, what would that be and how does it work? Now, I have a question it? for you about Grinder. Yeah. So the thing about Grinder is that it's these promiscuous gay men out yeah. there meeting up for hookup sex. But I'm wondering how much of that is about being gay and how much of that is men behaving when there aren't any women around? Yeah, there, well, there aren't any stories this week about uh, nun training colleges, <laughs> you know, so, and I don't know how nuns get trained. So, I mean, that's, that in itself says, says a whole pile of things. But, do you well, know, so, straight women men, sense just of civilization really, lore. really interesting enough, you know, yeah. when I went to study theology, um, I assumed, um, you know, that, that if you like, those who went into religious life, i.e. nuns and priests, that they kind of went along the same route. And at the time of ordination, if you like, the religious nuns went this way and the, the, the others went that way. And to my total horror, I discovered that nuns were not allowed really undertake a BD, that nuns were, were, were Wait, denied Bachelor of Divinity, were, were, oh, were denied right. kind of theological training. So that is only quite recent. So you would never have had a woman in a seminary and you would never have had a woman who was allowed to teach in a seminary. So, I mean, that certainly, you know, Indeed, has changed. Because that uh, piece we played earlier from the seminarian that uh, Francis interviewed, he had actually come out first to a nun, that they have nuns in the seminary counselling the men about their sexuality. And he had actually discussed it with her and said she was absolutely amazing. So that obviously is a huge change. Oh, it's a massive change. Yeah. I think Jerry is right. I think there have been enormous changes, but 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 it's um it's a bit patchworky. I'd say that's the thing. And there is still a battle going on between, if you like, two parts of the church. Those who would like they they, they talk about the restoration going back to the way it was, mm. and the reformers who want to go in a different direction. And Nathan Murphy from Off the Ball is here now to talk about the sports pages. Yeah, and unsurprisingly, it is uh, sports and the Olympics that are on the front pages as well. And it's corruption and scandal and Rio Olympics hit by new doping scandal. Is it on really the front good? Is Sunday it really Times. good for you when sports moves off the supplement? and onto the front page. No, no, we like our own little niche, you know, <laughs> where we can uh, we get our own big supplement every Sunday. Whenever it moves off the uh, sports pages, it's generally not good news okay. uh, from a sports point of view. But this is a story about the Kenyan track and field team who were, their team manager basically was secretly filmed offering to protect cheating athletes as long as, uh, for, he was basically bribing them. Wow. Which, uh, We've heard um, similar stories in the past from other countries and from even right up at the very top of the IAAF that people are protecting the uh, cheaters and the dopers and if you pay up and you uh, pay the money that you can get away with this. So we've a lot of these stories coming out, obviously in Ireland as well. The main focus this week has been on Michael O'Reilly. The latest from Rio and on the Dennis Walsh has a story in the Sunday Times is that he has lodged an appeal. Um, He's not going to get his B sample tested that appeal will be held back here in Ireland sometime over the next few days. It seems he's going to claim that the banned substance in his A sample was caused by a contaminated supplement. He is still in Rio. He is still in the Athletes Village. He's not around the rest of the And team. what are the precedents? Does the, it was an accident, my lord, appeal uh, tend to work? No, right. no. You as an athlete are 100% responsible for mm. everything mm. you ingest. Now, unless they have some way of proving that we don't know about that this was 100% an accident, but that is almost impossible to do. Okay, and what's coming up on the show later? Uh, coming up on the show, big day at Crow Park again, first of the All-Ireland Hurling semi-finals, Kilkenny against Waterford. We'll have full coverage of that and we're starting as always with the paper review. Uh, we've got Gary O'Toole coming in and Enda McNulty as well. Very good. Okay, Nathan, thanks a million. Thanks, so you're on Off the Ball at 12 o'clock. Could I just add this? Nathan didn't refer to the Irish men's hockey team who had a phenomenal um, loss, if you like, yesterday. They lost 3-2 to India, which is actually phenomenal. India Mm. is nearly the best men's hockey team in the world. And I think the Irish hockey team, it's it's 100 years, is it, since they actually got into the Olympics. So I think it's a phenomenal outcome and they may... They may they may go further. Yeah, they're the back other in thing that's inter- hmm? they're back in action again today. Yeah, who are they playing today? I think they're playing the Dutch. Yeah, that'll that'll be tough as well. Well, So I hope they're they're resilient enough. Of course, they're adding some great uh, new sports to the Olympics like surfing and skateboarding. And I'm just, I'm I'm waiting for the announcement of the egg and spoon race any day now. (laughs) And And that really, really upsets me because my background is in squash. I thought you were going to say egg and spoon. (laughs) 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 I mean, it's like tiddlywinks, so it'll never be there soon, you know. But I mean, it is just 
awful that squash is not an Olympic sport. In, in I mean, it's in unbelievable. In any small town rural Ireland festival, you have a field and you have all of these little competitions and that's the festival. So you have Wellington Throne competitions, <laughs> sandcastle <laughs> building well competitions. Wellington Throne and competitions. they did a parody that in Father Ted where they were on the park bench and the crane lifts them up and down. Yes, that's what the Olympics yes. will become like in the future. Yeah. And Gina, on that, so what do you think of beach volleyball getting in and squash not? Well, I mean, we're all, and the people in the squash community are absolutely devastated because, I mean, this lovely woman, Nicole David, she's been a world champion for almost um, three years and she said she would give up all her world you know titles to have one Olympic gold medal because it's a very it's a very honest sport uh, ah, but come on! Oh, sorry, squash is yeah, not a sport. Yeah, sorry, yeah. I was going to say the Olympics. Were yeah, honest. no, I mean, I, yeah. you know, I think like many people, I've kind of have a sort of a semi-detached approach with this year. You know, yeah. I mean, I suppose when there's somebody Irish taking part, I will be there, sort of waving my flag. But outside that, this kind of suspicion kind um, of hangs over it all. And Jerry O'Regan, there are a couple of comments um, in the uh, or columns in the in the papers this weekend. Uh, Kevin Myers in the Sunday Times is saying, even though the Olympic Games are an affront to all decency good taste and truth they survive like Sepp Blatter on steroids <laughs> the only way for a city to get the games is first by going mad and wanting to and second by entertaining senior Olympics officials with vats of Veuve Clicquot Clico, Le Grand Dame 1998 dancing girls and sacks of gold <coughs> thereafter probity within the games is on a par with how the games were allocated in the first place you know like can you watch them anymore and truly buy into the noble Olympian spirit um, I can. Okay. Oh, well done. <laughs> I, I, I think um, you, you know. I mean, obviously, you, you know, um, high-level sport has become more and more scientific, as we know, and even we'll say Gaelic football. You, you know, amateur sports. Yeah. And in fact, the talk is that people are being overtrained and over-energized and over everything. And I'd say the thin grey line. You know, where, you know, a hundredth of a second mm. can make the difference between gold and silver, say in the hundred metres or something like that. Obviously, you need a coach and you need a body conditioning and you need a psychologist and various other backup people, you know, which will try and get you that one hundredth of a second. And um, I, I'm cynical enough to realise that there are obviously a percentage of people getting through. And, you know, it happened way back some years ago. I remember with Ben Johnson mm. yeah. and who was the American, the other guy, he was the clean cut, the other clean cut guy. The, ben Johnson was Canadian. and Carl Lewis. Carl Lewis. Okay. Yeah. So, I should say, I did not remember that. The producer told no, me. <laughs> Carl Lewis, yeah. So, but I think there's two things. One is the sophisticated stuff that's available to athletes is getting ever better. But I think the tracking mechanisms for get, for catching it is also getting better. Um, Francis uh, Fitzgibbon, Tom McGurk, he's writing in the Sunday Business Post and he says the issue of doping has made the games a shambles and that it's known that huge numbers of known and convicted drug cheats appear to have got away with it and are competing. You know, do you think it just undermines the whole thing or... Yeah, totally. And I mean, the real... Obviously, a lot of sport has become about money and the stakes are so high that people feel they need to take enormous uh, risks to win and to get that uh, extra second to get the gold medal because the difference between a gold medal and a silver medal in terms of sponsorship funds and whatnot is massive. The real travesty is the impact this will have on young sports people in uh, urban communities around Ireland who are training their heart out and they see, well, you know what, this guy didn't make it to the top doing what I'm doing here, sweat and perspiration. They took drugs to do it. Mm. And I remember uh, my father was an avid uh, fan of cycling and he would, much to my amazement, sit down and watch the Tour de France for three or four hours. People cycling up hills. I never understood it. Yeah, but, but he stopped after the, the doping yeah. scandals of, of Lance Armstrong and whatnot. And he just felt that it wasn't real. You know, mm. And, you know, and it didn't reflect him cycling up hills. And that's why we watch sport. And that's why it's so important, because sport... There was an issue recently came up in a paper which I thought was terrible that, that this, some school or other had talked they had an open sports day and they didn't want to have winners and first place and second place oh, and third yeah. place because they didn't want to put pressure on the kids and I thought what a rubbish and ridiculous argument kids should be taught about competition because it teaches them that life is tough and if you're willing to you know stay away from drugs and alcohol and get into fitness 
and think about how you can make it from second place or third place up to first place. That's what life is all about. It's and I know they, they talk about the 10,000 10, hours of practice, whether it's playing the violin or, or hitting, a, hitting a ball. And I think what really I think is really sad as a sports fanatic all my life is that, you know, the, the decent people you know, and decent, the decent kids who are striving to be better and to achieve, that somehow it, it impacts on them. What about this cult of self-esteem that Francis has raised with kids that, um, oh, no, 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 it's not about winning. It's the taking part. Well, I think, counts. I mean, again, I know a little bit about the psychology of sport. I think the age at which sort of co- competition is introduced is very, very important. I, you know, I wouldn't be in favour too much of the under 10s being in mad competition. I, I, I'm a great believer in everybody being involved. I, and it's only kind of maybe mid-teens that I think the sort of, if you want to be really competitive and you want to pursue a sport, I think then fine. But, you know, I'm not in favour of setting up little kiddies against each other yeah, too much. Yeah, well, I, I'm, I have a confession to make now in this regard, Jerry. I was a, a bit of vol- a mad mother confession <laughs> no, here. No. I, mean, I, was volun- I was volunteering in a school recently, not the one my own children are in, and we were doing a project. It was to do with business, and it was an inter-school competition and an internal school competition, and the official people organising it, Solace, they're a fantastic um, a non-profit organisation where it pains to point out to all the children, look, don't worry about winning. You know, you're here and you've done a great job already with what you're doing and it's all about taking part and I said to my team okay forget that (laughs) (laughs) we're going to (laughs) win they weren't taking any banned substances were they (laughs) no they weren't but you know we did win and they were bloody delighted that they won you know and um, how old were they then they were sixth class about yeah. 11, but 11 know, and 12. You, you learn nothing from winning. <laughs> what you learn from losing. Oh, yes. that's, that's, well, I've plenty of experience yeah. of that too, Francis. Yeah. But Jerry, what do you think well, about the whole I, winning doesn't count thing? I don't know. I, I mean, uh, having been at school sports days, there are terrible uh, situations for kids who inevitably come last or second mm. last in every single race, except maybe the sack race or something like that. And they're great for the kids that come and, you, you know, you see it in uh, underage football. I'm not so sure, even with under 10s, that you can stop them competing because it's so much part. And I, I don't think, you see, if you've got an under 10-year-old and you say to him, until he's 10th birthday, don't try. Let the other guy oh, score well, all no, the goals you, against yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. And then suddenly in his 10th birthday, you say, go for it. Just <laughs> go for it. OK. Um, yeah. You know, the transition might be a bit... I, look, it's one of those things that, that there's no solution to it. Sport is brutal in its... In its um, hierarchical nature. To, to, to go in the stereotype Francis. there, the, the guy who might have come last and the rest of them, he might excel in academia. Oh, so, yeah. And then the guy who yes. wins in sports yeah. might come last in academia. So, so should the teacher say to the guy who's performing poorly in academia, don't worry about it, you'll yeah. be fine. Mm. Yeah. There's no need to get A's and B's, you're a D or an E, will be fine. It's a question of getting kind of the context right and it's not a question of saying that there's no competition under 10 and now suddenly you end. It's a question of, of, of organising, I think, a sporting environment that is age appropriate for whatever is happening. Um, and obviously people have to win but I, I'm kind of fascinated by um, you know I, I'd be a Leinster rugby fanatic and when you go to the Leinster matches you know at half time they've all these very small children and it's great there's, there's boys and girls and they're taking part in their little mini rugby but what I liked about the way it's done they're putting kids in and out the whole time you know, it's the, the 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 group that starts off the little mini rugby game isn't the group that finishes. They pull them out, and you can see kids who are very good, who have massive potential, and others who aren't. But they all yeah, have a sense that. But this I've is heard my children complain on both sides of that complain bitterly that they were winning until they brought in the guy who was useless to give him a go and then when they're the ones being left on the sideline because they didn't get in and they're not called in until the end. Well see there's also a big difference between team and individual sports and I think it's easier to keep the balance maybe in the team situation of moving people around a bit whereas when it's individual you know it's very hard you're going for it and I'm not sure that you know 10 year olds being obsessed about winning is is healthy it's just a personal view I I'd like it to be much I think as well though that one of the things about sport maybe unfortunately is that it's an intrinsically fairly selfish activity mm. and that you have to be mm. and yes, people have been saying in the papers the last few days you know oh well the situation about the boxer will put a cloud over the other members of Team Ireland and somebody else says it won't. won't. Everybody else is concentrating on their own individual performance. is that not a metaphor for life? That that is what the world is now? It's me, me, me and you win and to hell with the rest. And was it different? <laughs> well, there you go. Even in the Garden of Eden, somebody got the apple and somebody <laughs> took a bite of it. 
<laughs> I'd better read a few texts before we wrap up. Uh, read the atheist in Monaghan. Nobody was advocating the Christians leave the market. All the atheist group were looking for was the same permission afforded a different group. One of the reasons the church still has control over our schools and hospitals, and that is not normal, is because it's linked to our culture. Granny selling trinkets or Bibles ensures the culture will continue to be normalised. And that's fine, but to deny an opposing view, even the opportunity to give an opposing voice is wrong. Chill out doesn't cut it. That's for you, Francis. Look, I had better wrap now. Um, Jerry O'Regan, Gina Menzies and Francis Fitzgibbon, many thanks for joining me this morning.